Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 20, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And what a guest we've got this week for our 20th episode. My favourite console, the Amiga CD32. This guy launched it. David Pleasance. <laughs> now, uh, we've got, we saved a big one for our 20th episode, David Pleasance, who is the former joint MD of Commodore UK. Well, he was there from, like, the PET through the Commodore 64, through the Plus 4, the launch of the Amiga in the UK. This yeah. is a guy that put together the Batman pack. Yeah, you know and he's I mean? going to be featured in Bedrooms to Billions, the Amiga years, yes. which came out yesterday. Exactly, so uh, perfectly timed this, actually. So we're looking forward to this. David's going to come on. In around 20, 25 minutes from now, we're going to get the inside story of Commodore UK, which um, was actually the most successful Commodore subsidiary, wasn't it? Yeah. So uh, if you have any interest in the Amiga, this is one that you cannot miss. He's going to be on the show very soon. And uh, we thought we'd save him because this is a rather big episode, Ravi. This is our 20th We've got to big up ourselves, man. If I look at the list of guests that we've had on this show, it's like all my childhood heroes, basically. You know what? As much as, you know, we've been hanging out a lot more doing this show. I mean, we, you know, we've been mates for years now anyway. Yeah. But I think the fact that, you know, I, I do love coming in and talking about the news and all that, but you're absolutely right. It's the fact that all these people that I read magazine interviews with when I was a kid, the fact that we're chatting to these guys on a you know weekly basis now. It's crazy. And the fact that they're actually responding to them <laughs> us when we ask them to come on the show, you know, it's, it's really great. And I think what we're doing here is great. We've got a little nice community that's building up. Yeah, and honestly, we love your feedback, guys. You know, every new comment we got on, we get on iTunes. Ravi's emailing me. Have you seen this new comment? Look yeah, how nice oh, this is. one's nice. Oh, this guy's <laughs> horrible. You know, it's great. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we, we first planned doing this podcast. It was like just before Christmas, wasn't it? A bit yeah. of a spur of the moment thing. Let's try a podcast for a yeah, couple of weeks. Yeah, you were just like, let's try a podcast. Yeah, we thought like... we'd give it a couple of episodes, see how it went. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say the, the reaction's been pretty overwhelming. So Totally, and I must say, Dan, without your editing skills, <laughs> and uh, so you've saved a lot of calls that have been uh, very uh, dodgy quality. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't normally sound this good. Very heavily edited. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but listen, guys, thank you so much for uh, putting up with us over the last 20 weeks or so. And uh, here's to the next 20. Totally, and you can return a favour, guys, if you really do like us and uh, you want to vote for us and give us a free night of getting drunk in Manchester. <laughs> and then uh, we were actually going up for some podcast awards at the moment, which is uh, through New Media Europe. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be sharing on our Facebook page a little poll. And if you just tick on that, the Retro Hour podcast, then we will rise to the top. <laughs> so, what, we, what, what do we need to beat at the moment? Oh, we, we've got to beat 355. And I figure we get over a 1,000 listeners... Oh, we got a oh, week. I, I think, so. you know, if combined episodes, I think we get over 3,000 people listening. Yeah, to so come on, guys. You know, we've got 12 at the moment on the <laughs> poll, so we'll try and make it to the top. So we'll stick that on our Facebook page and at theretrohour.com. I mean, you know, Ravi and I, we're not, we never ask for anything in return. You know, we don't no, charge no, for the it's show. it's all, all for free, yeah. So if you'd like to uh, just give us a little thank you, that would be much appreciated. Go to theretrohour.com, just tick that little box, it'll take you two seconds, and then... Uh, We'll have to go suit shopping. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> right then, before David Pleasance, let's get into this week's show. Um, now, I thought this was pretty cool. A huge replica of the MOS 6502 is coming. The MOS 6502. This was the chip in the... Uh, was in no? a, yeah, I mean, lo Commodore loads of computers 64. used it. Well, yeah, there's a variant of it. I think it was a 6510 in the Commodore uh, 64, but stuff like uh, the Commodore PET used it. Atari 400, the 800, BBC Micro. Um, apparently the Tamagotchi used it as well. Oh, cool. Which I didn't know. <laughs> but yeah, the Chuck Pedal designed it. You know, this was like really the first affordable um, microprocessor. Yeah. Uh, but what this, these guys have done here, it was originally called the MOS 6502. They've now called this the Monster 
6502. Oh, like Moss. <laughs> yeah, I like it. And even use the MOS, you know, font. But what this essentially is, it's a transistor-scale replica. So this thing is massive. It's like a proper, you know, sitting on top of a table. Is it? Is it workable? Yeah, it works. <laughs> but what they've done is, it, it probably is about the size, looking at this here. I think they actually give dimensions of uh, just how big this is. Okay, it's a four-layer circuit board. It's 12 by 15 inches. So you're talking a microchip that's like that big. But <laughs> Not very micro anymore, <laughs> is it? It's not, yeah, well, it's transistor level. Yeah. But what you can see, they've actually put all these like, little LEDs around the board. So you can see like where the electricity is traveling to and what's oh, working wow. at different times. That's, that's good. As an educational tool, you know. Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, they're saying it actually, it's clocked a bit slower than the 6502, you know, actual um, IC is. Um, but, I mean, if you scroll down this webpage, I'll, I'll put a link to it, but the website is monster6502.com, and you can see all these little LED lights flashing and everything on it and all these, you know, points in the board where they've wired things into. And apparently they've got, like, Apple II Basic running on it and uh, Oregon's trial and stuff like that. Oh, wow. This so, is great. I like it. <laughs> I mean, this is ultra, ultra geeky. It's ultra geeky, but also, you know, it will interest other people yeah. who are learning programming, who are playing with Raspberry Pis and stuff. Just, you know, people want to, just see to see how stuff works. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm interested know. in this. You know, seeing that, oh, so that's going there. And you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, that chip does this and that, you know. And just having a 6502 that's like, you know, as big as your coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you could turn it into a coffee table, Dan, and then, you know, process stuff whilst you're drinking your coffee. Do you want the bad news? No. Uh, they said they're not for sale yet. They said if they were to assemble them, they'd be uh, more than $1,000, but probably just slightly less than 5000 So Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want to hook one up to a Commodore 64. Very expensive though. coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> right then, so um, we have got David Pleasance on the show in uh, in a few minutes, and he's going to be appearing in this new documentary now. We did have uh, Nicola and Anthony Caulfield on the show not long ago. Yeah, talking about the documentary. So if you don't know much about it, then you can check out that previous one. Bedrooms to Billions, the Amiga years. Now, did you watch the original Bedrooms to Billions? Yeah. One of the best kind of computer documentaries that I've seen based on Britsoft and yeah. the UK kind of, which is what this podcast is all about, the European kind of area of gaming that's not been explored. And they've actually chucked it up onto Vimeo On Demand. Mm -hmm. So you can get it for £10.94. That's a bargain. And you can stream or download at any time. I love that about, you know, digital delivery as well, because I got the first Bedrooms to Billions. I remember it was one night, like, Samantha was out uh, with work, and I was sitting at home, nothing to watch, and then I thought, oh, I haven't watched that thing yet. And then uh, literally went on, clicked it, downloaded it, you know, watch it straight well, away. Well, it's on Netflix. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my friends that don't talk about gaming have been like, oh, have you seen this Bedrooms to Billions documentary? Because they've just been at home going through Netflix. and Something to watch. Yeah, so yeah. maybe there'll be a big upsurge in Amiga interest, hopefully. But, I mean, you know, if you miss the episode with Anthony and Nicola, it was, they've got a, a very strong professional background in making documentaries. They've done stuff like the BBC and all that yeah. they're telling us. So this is, I mean, it, it's not a little, like, you know, thing edited for YouTube. This is a full-on production that we'd look at home on, like, BBC One, wouldn't well, it? Well, also, with the recent passing of Dave Needle, mm -hmm. this is one of the last interviews... With yeah. Dave Needle on video. So this is, uh, you know, a very important piece of Amiga history. Yeah, and I think the film's dedicated to him as well. Yeah. Um, Anthony yeah, was telling us so. Yeah. It's finally out, so if you uh, want a bit of watching for the weekend, I think it's about two and a half hours long as well, isn't it? So, oh, yeah, I can't wait. Very <laughs> yeah, depth, I'm so. going to get crisps and everything and sit down. <laughs> Probably not in. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you want to watch it, and we, we'd advise anyone that loves this show, you're going to absolutely love this documentary. Links will be in the show notes at theretrohour.com. You know, it's been taken up my time this week. Oh, what is it? The um, new do game. Oh, God, yeah. I, I thought you were going to say Shadow of the Beast then. But... I haven't got it yet. Well, you know, I'm going to let everyone into a little secret here. We actually 
don't do the show live. It's recorded a few days before it goes out. I know. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it only uh, literally recording this on Tuesday. Shadow of the Beast came out today, didn't it? I haven't been home though since like. Yeah, this I've, I've watched some people streaming it online, but yeah. I haven't played it yet. What uh, a week though with a new Doom and new Shadow of the Beast coming out. This is crazy, isn't it? Obviously, retro gaming's uh, uh, becoming a popular thing. What, you- what do you think of the new Doom then? Uh, have you played it? No, I've not touched it. Well, I've not touched the multiplayer beta either. Or the multiplayer, I tried the beta, wasn't impressed. No? It, I think, you know, the main complaint I saw about the multiplayer is that it kind of takes away everything that kind of made Doom, you know, not just a generic FPS. Like, Doom is a proper arena shooter, isn't it, in multiplayer yeah. mode? And this just feels like, you know, the multiplayer just feels like any other... So, what, FPS it didn't game. feel like Doom? Or... I didn't enjoy the multiplayer much, and the reaction online has been awful, but the thing is, the campaign's actually developed by a completely different team. Now, this was the guys that did Return to uh, Castle, Wolfenstein yeah. one, which you absolutely loved. New Order, yeah, yeah. which is an amazing game. So it's um, you know two different teams. And th- the reason I bought the new Doom is for the campaign. So I thought, I love that game that much. I'm going to give it a go. And I've probably only played about an hour and a half of it so far. Yeah. Um, but honestly, it is yeah one of the most fun games. Yeah. So obviously, you know, you're playing the game on Mars. So you come out and like you know you kind of got the red mist in, in the air and all that kind of yeah. thing. But it's, <laughs> if you, I don't know if you've seen any of the gameplay footage. Not at all, no. But obviously, you get, you know, you get your classic Doom guns have all been upgraded and they're kind of cool. But what might is my favourite bit about the game is kind of the melee attacks. Okay. So what you do is that you grab a demon around his neck, punch him, and his head just bursts. <laughs> and there's so many different modes you can do this in. Like so, but if you've got like four demons Sounds in a like row, Gears of War. Or well, you can do this kind of multi attacks. So yeah. you grab one, punch him, grab him, pick him up, smash him into the one behind him. His head bursts on a cliff. You get the one, rip his leg off, beat him to death with it. Oh jeez, like, it's hilarious. Brutal. I sit there, my girlfriend. She's like, "What are you playing?" She's laughing her head off. It's so funny. <laughs> But um, yeah, like I said, I'm only just seen you know, a scratch the surface because I didn't get it till like Saturday, and I had a pretty busy weekend. But yeah, I'm loving it so far. So you're so. going to play through the whole campaign on? Oh that, yeah, I, guess, well, yeah. I think you know with Wolfenstein: The New Order, I, I blasted through. That's probably the quickest I've played through like a current gen game in, in years. So yeah, excellent. Soon. Well, looking forward to uh, hearing more about what's going on and if there's any levels where it goes back to the old Doom, like in Wolfenstein. Yeah, well, I've heard there is something of that in there. I mean, I haven't really read too much about it yet, but um, I'm sure there'll be some little. Easter eggs in there too. Let's see. And I'll let you know what I think of Shadow of the Beast because yeah. I'll, I'll be downloading that tonight. Well, uh, there's a lot of VR going on at the moment. Yeah, VR's it, a big thing. In the 80s, Atari <laughs> seemed to be doing something. What's this done? Well, I'd never heard of this. Now, obviously, virtual reality, you know, we, we tried the, uh, we mentioned at Play Blackpool, we tried the early um, virtual reality. reality yeah. yeah, and that was, what, 1991? Yeah, and it was blooming heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, and that was Amiga-based. Yeah. And we thought, you know, we, I think we said on the show that was kind of the first one, we thought, yeah. Well, what's come about this week, um, it's an article on a website called Versions. And they found that Atari were developing virtual reality in 1982. Oh, wow. Atari, Amiga, they're all from the same yeah, well, I mean, group, yeah. It's the same kind yeah, of era, 82, I guess. 82, wow. 82 is like a decade before anyone else is doing it. So is this with a headset then? Well, the way it works, I mean, the, the details of it are quite sketchy in this article, but they actually show this, um, it's like an industrial design document here, and it kind of gives you like you know, the blueprint for it, you could say. And they've got the, like a model standing up at an arcade cabinet, so it was originally developed for the arcades. Ah. And you've got to bear in mind, you know, um, 1982, stuff like Defender and like Pac-Man and stuff was ruining the arcades, yeah. so really this is, you know, it was so far ahead of the time, but um, apparently they were working on kind of some, some working hardware, but it doesn't really say how far on they got with it. But I think the idea was, it was um, kind of a cabinet that you put your head into. <laughs> so you'd have an arcade cabinet, you put it in, kind of, you get like a you know, wraparound display and you get sound in your ears and stuff like that. You'd have to stand with your head like in like a box kind of thing. Yeah. But also, what's really interesting is, 
it apparently pumps smells into there as well. <laughs> so smell-o-vision, basically. <laughs> that, that, that would have stunk after all these blokes putting their heads in oh, and then all the smells. <laughs> I remember the smell of arcades in the 80s and 90s. It wasn't the nicest without smell-o-vision. 20, 20 years of that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, uh, it, oh, it's really interesting, though, because I mean, it kind of charts this like, history, and um, one of the guys that was working on it was from a Xerox Park, yeah. and he'd come to um, Atari to work on it. And it was around the time... The Time Warner had just acquired Atari, so they had pretty much okay. unlimited money. You know, they were yeah. throwing money, and it was obviously '83. The North American video game crash happened, so all the plans were just scrapped. Ah, that makes so, a lot of sense. Yeah, the bubble kind of burst in video games, and uh, you know, the, the team that working behind it left. And it said one of the guys that working on it, his name was um, Morton Halig. His name was, and apparently, he was really like you know, he, he died in the early '90s, just as like the, you know, the first VR kind of hype was happening. And apparently it says here, it's quite sad, he said he was really bitter that no one knew who he was or he, was, he wasn't recognised for his contributions to the medium. Uh, and he was kind of an early early pioneer. Yeah, a decade before, and no one ever heard of him, so it's pretty tragic, really. But... Well, we're mentioning him now, so... There you go, yeah. Yeah. rest in peace. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I'd never heard of this before. No, no, I've so... not, I, it's a great little article. That's the thing about this kind of, you know, retro technology. You can learn new stuff about it all the time. It's like Yeah, and our news <laughs> items just pop up, you know. <laughs> and talking of another one... This is really relevant to who we've just had on, which was uh, two weeks ago we had Tom Kalinske on. Former head of Sega. Former head of Sega, indeed. Now, a Sega training video has come out about the life of a video games tester, set in 1996. So, obviously, it's got all the 1996 kind of vibes, you know, Coca-Cola, it's got bad haircuts, <laughs> it's got, you know, uh, Nine Inch Nails t-shirts, um, Seinfeld posters. This looks very 90s. I'm yeah, at totally. It now, yeah. And Tom Kalinske is in it at the end as well. He's doing a big talk. It's, it's really good. You should check it out. Um, yeah, rad haircuts. <laughs> well, it was, it was 28, 28 minutes long, this, and it's on, uh, it's on Vimeo now, isn't it? Yeah. And it was filmed on location at Sega's offices in Redwood City. What an amazing little glimpse into, uh, you know, an, an amazing bit of history in, in video games. Totally. And, and when we talked to him, he said, you know, this was the one place where the most Coca-Cola and pizza was sold to, and you could really feel the vibe. You could really <laughs> smell the Coca-Cola and yeah, pizza. You look at every shot here, there's like, you know, a can on someone's desk or something, isn't there? Yeah. But, um, yeah, well, this is, this is a really interesting time, though, because really, 96, that was, you know, the Saturn was out by then. This is probably just at the time stuff started to go wrong, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, because at the end they've got stacks of Genesis still. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, no one's buying these anymore. Yeah. Cute 90s chicks in it as well. I'm looking at oh, the, of course. the Adam Giff at the top there. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually had a mate who was a games tester for Sega. Oh, okay. Probably about 2007. And he worked in London. Yep. At their head office. Um... And he quit after about three weeks, hated it. Really? <laughs> yeah. Huh. I, I said to him, I said, dude, that must be the best job in the world. He said, what he'd actually do is he'd get in at like six o'clock in the evening when all the coders had gone home and everything. His job was to play the games right through the night. So he'd do like 12 hours playing games. After stay up, you know, obviously all night. And they'd ply him with, they'd give him pizzas and like, you know, sodas to stay yeah, awake yeah. and all that. But he said, it, you know, you'd have to do like bug reports of all the games, but he said you could literally be playing the same stage of a game over and over again for like 12 hours for like four or five nights in a row. And he said, you know, he loved video games before he did that job and it kind of killed his passion for it. If he was streaming that now, he'd probably be one of the top people <laughs> yeah, on exactly, Twitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Forget that non-disclosure agreement. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, well, this is really interesting though. So if you're not a glimpse into the inner workings of Sega, especially because we said, you know, that obviously the new Seth Rogen, um, the Console Wars movie, is mm. going to be in production soon. So Yeah, we'll uh, see how similar they are. <laughs> that's what I was going to say, yeah, you yeah. know, see if they, uh, they might watch that now, might they? We'll have to redo the sets. <laughs> yeah. Get more coat guns. <laughs> now, 
I don't think we'd be mentioning this again. Oh no, we're not going back here, are we? <laughs> the Calico Chameleon. Oh no. This is quite a funny update, though. Have you heard about this? No, I've 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 stayed away from any Calico news. Well, someone's hijacked their Facebook page. Ah, okay. So you remember Mike Kennedy? Yeah. The guy behind it, obviously, you know, when it when it all kicked off, they deleted the Facebook page, took the website down and all that. It yeah. turns out that apparently when you delete a Facebook page, anyone else is free to claim the name and stuff again. So. Oh, oh yes. Didn't think of that <laughs> at all. Yeah. So he removed everything. Yeah. Someone went, Oh, that name's available now. So they registered this. Uh, it's under the Retro VGS name, which was its original. So uh, their first post on there was, Welcome to Retro VGS, the world's first PCI capture card advertised <laughs> as a games console. And then the next one, and they're talking about, you know, they're trying to raise $1 billion. And for that, a generous 5% will be spent on prototyping. So this is like, you know, it's obviously... He's, he's turned it into a troll account, hasn't oh, he? absolutely. Yeah, so. And uh, it's, you know, obviously it's Mike Kennedy. The guy that signs all these is Bike Penedy. So uh, I, I actually feel a bit sorry for Mike after seeing this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's going to stay up very long. No, but. and I think I think people are getting a bit carried away with it. They want to keep putting too many digs in. You know, it's yeah. uh, it's over, guys. Yeah, move on, but yeah, it, it did make me giggle when I saw it. I must no, admit. yeah, you must have got a little bit of a shock. <laughs> I was like, what the backup? Yeah. Now, something from the demo scene. Something from the demo scene, yes, and this is... Uh, Relevant to a guest that we're going to be getting on soon. Ooh, uh, little teaser. Li- little teaser, yeah. So this is on powit.net. I love that website. Oh, yeah. It's, you, it's, you know what else is great about it? It works on uh, on the Amiga in eyebrows. It's like a you know, non-CSS site. It all looks great and everything. Oh, nice. So, they've done it up for this. Well, this is a thing called Chip Machine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, music discs. This is essentially your ultimate music disc. You can download it for Linux, Windows, Mac OS, Raspberry Pi, mm-hmm. and you can have it in full screen. And it has all the different categories of mods, classic Amiga mods. Just press play, it will bang it on the screen, it will display scrolling text on there, oh, wow. and it just runs really smooth. It's like a it's like a kind of just a front end just for playing mods. But even the font and the design of it, it looks a bit like um like Cracked Rose used to do. Yeah, it? exactly. It's like your music disc but with every single tune on it, you know. This looks awesome and it's like uh yeah, can, can it play other mods then? Can you load stuff into yeah, it? Yeah, you can load stuff yeah. into that and it's all pre-configured so you know it'll read the .xm files, oh, it'll good. read .mod, it'll read all the crazy weird formats and yeah. you know it there's no need to set up an emulator or anything. You just download it, bam. Yeah, for me at play. the moment, you know, to play mods on my PC, I've got like a plug-in for Winamp. But yeah. it's not, it doesn't play a lot of well, stuff. Well, this, but... you could have a Raspberry Pi, mm-hmm. a screen, some speakers, and just have it as a dedicated mod-playing oh, well, yeah, machine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That would be cool. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah scrolling with the nice, text across I've got and everything. a few spare Raspberry Pis. Yeah, definitely. Now, before we get on to David Pleasance this week, you've been visiting a new place here in our fair city of Nottingham. Gaming is growing in Nottingham indeed, and we've got a new place, which is Alt Gaming Lounge, which is a whole like lounge and cafe area dedicated to gaming. It's crazy. So you went in, you've been there a couple of times now? Yeah, I've been in there a couple of times. My first introduction there was, this is our retro room we have from SNES to um, N64 or something like that. I was like, SNES? Yeah. Wait, you need to go further back then. Yeah, now. yeah. They're just like those three years. Yeah, yeah. but this, this was their first week. So, you know, the guy, he's going to go looking around stuff. But mm-hmm. this place is crazy. It's like... I'd say 50-seater at the front okay. with all different units down. Then at the back, they've got a whole LAN room where people are, you know, playing Call of Duty, Counter-Strike, oh, wow. all sponsored by Logitech. Mm-hmm. They've also got a room with, I think, 12 Xbox Ones, and they're all playing games in there. They've got this 
virtual reality area with uh, one of the guns, so you can play Call of Duty on VR with oh, the no gun. Way, really? Yeah, that sounds awesome. And um, it's just a nice little place for Nottingham's gaming well, community. Like you said, considering it's only been open a week, I think it's kind of like uh, you know, obviously attracting some interesting events. And uh, we're actually going down tonight at the time the show goes out yeah. on Friday evening. Uh, Ravi obviously said you need to educate them. I think we're bringing a, an Amiga along. <laughs> yeah, I talked to the owner, and he said, "Oh, bring it along. Yeah, yeah, we've got the old TVs. Bring it out, and you know they're open to eleven. Yeah. They've got a bar, so this is going to be a good. That's night. all I need to get there." <laughs> So this is called the Alt Video Game Lounge. Yep, that's okay. the one. And you can get them on facebook.com slash Lounge. Cool. Well, we'll, uh, we'll pop a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Right, well, thank you so much for listening to episode number 20. Oh, my God. I'm 21 looking, coming up. I'm looking forward to celebrating my 21st birthday again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, of course, we'll be back next Friday for episode 21. You can download the show every single Friday from theretrohour.com. Get us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, your favourite podcast client. Vote for us on the uh, podcast awards. Yeah, and please do. We'll pop a link in the show notes and on our website as well we'd really appreciate your votes guys if you listen every week and you just want to give a little something back that's yeah. all we ask <laughs> one, one little click of the mouse so uh, yeah vote for us in the podcast awards everything you need to know at theretrohour.com and that's it from us for now and we're going to hand you over to this week's special guest David Pleasance Managing Director of Commodore UK and we'll see you next Friday ciao Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, a dear friend of ours, David Pleasance. Hello, guys. Hello, How David. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm really, really well, thank you. Now, uh, this is our 20th episode of the podcast, so uh, we wanted a special guest on this week, someone who uh, I know has got some really interesting stories to tell. And uh, obviously, having run Commodore UK and uh, been responsible for some of the biggest Amiga packs back in the old days, we thought it would be quite nice to have you on and get a few stories. Well, indeed, it's, uh, it's very kind of you to invite me. I feel very flattered. So uh, what was your background then before you got into computers? Yeah, well, actually, um, I've been in sales and marketing um, a very, very long time. I mean, I guess my first real job, I was a musician. But um, one day my my wife said, get a real job or else. (laughs) (laughs) So so I did. And and, uh, I got into... um, I got into the retail market, first of all, um, uh, with uh, consumer finance. Um, I worked for the Provident Group in the UK, so I was always dealing with retailers. And then I decided, okay, well, now I've been selling intangibles. It's time to get into selling tangibles as part of my career development. So I joined 3M Company, and um, that was that was fun because th- that's a company. I think they're about the 26th largest company in the world. The floppy disks and uh, tapes. Yeah, and well, they have 87,000 products worldwide. I was able to get a hold of any of the products that they had in their in their portfolio and turn them into a retail product. Part of that for me was um, I launched uh, relaunched their their range of cassette um, recording tapes. And anyway, I, I decided I wanted to leave Australia. I wanted to get an international role. And I, I traveled all over the world. And that's when I decided that the next big thing was going to be home computing. Um, came back to the UK. And then by a complete and utter fluke, I got a job with Commodore. You swapped the Australian sunshine for Maidenhead. I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, actually, originally they were in Slough. Yeah, and then, then we moved. We bought a 10-acre site built a massive big factory in Corby. Uh, I moved there with them, and then we sold that factory and, um, and uh, moved back to Maidenhead. 
What kind of products were you selling originally then? Well, actually, my first job was I was selling um, business uh, computers. That they, they, the reason that I got the position was that they, they decided they wanted to sell their business products into the retail channels. And the dilemma they had, they did not know whether they wanted to get a computer specialist who knew nothing about retail or a retail specialist who knew nothing about computers. And the agency that they used, the recruitment agency, suggested they got a retail specialist. And that was me. Well, it always seemed to me back then that Commodore, I know the name was Commodore Business Machines, and obviously they had the background with the calculators and typewriters before that as well. It all seemed like Commodore really wanted that business market, you know, like with a pet and everything, but it was always a home market where they really dominated. Did you find there's much like kind of contradiction there or anything? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, um, I think they were out of their depth with the business market. Um, and one of, one of Commodore's problems has always been that they never really understood the market. And the one thing that they refused to do, they refused to invest in um, uh, establishing a relationship with software companies. And, and let's be honest about it. If you're in the world of business computers and you don't have a relationship with, you know, with the Microsofts or whoever of this world, then you're not going to get very far. And um, I think they stumbled by accident upon the, the home computer market. Uh, initially, they put some. They had this product called the Kim, which was a put it together yourself kit. And then they they went from there. They they uh, they came up with the Vic Twenty, and then the Commodore sixty four, uh, and, and it was the sixty four that really um, kicked them, you know, along a very big way. Could you tell us about? CBM's UK Royal appointment. Yeah, the interesting thing was that um, um, I've literally just um, a, a couple of weeks ago donated the actual uh, original certificate from um, uh, signed by um, McLean, which was the original Royal Warrant. Mm. Um, I rescued that from the skip, believe it or not. No way. <laughs> yeah, and, and that had been awarded. That was awarded. I think it was in 1981. Or thereabouts, and um, so yeah, I, I know. I remember seeing it on the wall the first day I joined the company. Anyway, I, I ended up rescuing it, and I've literally donated that to to the uh, in 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 um, Cambridge to the um, what's it called, the computer or the museum. Um, Museum, yeah. yeah. So I remember yeah. when I got my Commodore Plus Four in the back of the box, that had like the Royal Seal and stuff on there as well. It was, you know, quite rare that you'd see it on a technology product. Yes, um, I think it was. I think it was pets that um, we supplied to them. That was what we had at the time, you know. And I think at, at the time they were fairly well advanced, you know. Well, you obviously I mentioned the Plus Four then as well, which was my first machine. Um, were you involved in them selling the Plus Four at all? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really funny story that one because. Um, it, it, it was always a lemon, that product. Mm -hmm. um, it was a, another example of Commodore launching to the world a product that nobody ever asked for. Anyway, I mean, it's essentially, um, we, we, we had loads of it shipped to us, and um, we, we just simply couldn't sell it really more or less at any price. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was we had a, um, a new MD came in, a guy called Nick Bessie, who was, in fact, um, ex-IBM. Very nice guy, actually. And um, he'd been given an instruction, you know, clear out um, as much as you can of a Plus 4 inventory. And so he came to me, because as, as, I was obviously head of the consumer division, and he said, um, David, how are we going to sell this stuff? 
And I said, well, that's a very good question because um, the trouble is that the, the, the guys, my team, are, are not, you know, they're just so turned off by it. Uh, I said, they need some kind of extra incentive. So anyway, he said, he said, okay, so well, what sort of thing? And I said, I honestly don't know. I said, it's not about the money. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he said, okay. He said, what about, he said, if for every 100 units, we'll give you a bottle of champagne or something. And I said, well, look, yeah, booze is always a good thing <laughs> for the sales team. So anyway, we they, they also lowered the price, which they obviously needed to do. Obviously, having myself being responsible for all the, the, the big chains, the first thing I did was, as a matter of fact, with a complete coincidence, I went to Lasky's and I sold a whole swag of them to Lasky's. Mm-hmm. And it was going, the idea was that they were going, we were going to sell this pack for £99.99 pence in time for the Christmas market. Anyway, so I, I sold the bulk of what we had and uh, had the contract and came back. And then about two weeks later, this guy turns up at the offices and um, he was a real cockney. Anyway, he was representing Greens. I don't know if you, well, you must remember Greens. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Sir, Sir, what's his name? Green has been in the news recently for his antics with British home stores. Yes, of course. Yeah. Anyway, this guy turned up and he was he was a real cockney. And he said, uh, he said, I've got 25 million quid I want to spend with you. I said, oh, lovely. And he said, yeah, I said, I want all your Commodore 64s. I want to buy the whole lot. I couldn't do that. I'd already got orders for Christmas from every one of the major retailers, Dixon and Comet and Curry's and you name it, you know. And I just said, no, I'm sorry. They're already accounted for. And he was getting really quite irate, you know. And he said, I can't believe I can't spend 25 million quid with you. <laughs> so I said to him, I said, oh, I said, have you heard of the plus four? <laughs> <laughs> this new machine said, we've got, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and he said, no, what's that? So anyway, I told him. And anyway, cut a long story short, right, he committed to buying every single one. I had to go back to Lasky's and, and renege on the deal um, because I sold everything we could get our hands on to, to Greens. So we put this pack together, and then the next thing you know, they start they start selling them. I think it was about October they started selling, and they were going out like a wildfire. And anyway, so the next thing you know, I, I go back to Greens with uh, Tom Hardy, used to work uh, at Commodore 2, and we sold them all of our peripherals that matched it. They were all um, that um, sort of a charcoal grey. Yeah, the tape 1541 drives yeah. and the monitors and and you name it, you know, and we sold them everything. And then, anyway, the sales were going so well, they wanted more. So I managed to get the whole of the worldwide stock of Plus Fours in every form, component form or whatever. We got them all back to the UK, put them all together, put them into packs, and they took the lot. And then, of course, Christmas Day comes along, and uh, uh, luckily the the pack, had, I think it had about 10 games in it, if yeah, I remember rightly. Yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, and anyway, so the first week or two, everything was fine because, uh, you know, the kids opened up their Christmas present and then they started playing games. And then, anyway, a couple of weeks later, they wanted to go and buy some more. And that's when they discovered that the Plus 4 software was not compatible with the Commodore 64 because <laughs> they'd never asked. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the door locked right, we've got rid of them, that's it, they're gone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and that was so funny, and I still, I still laugh about that now. I mean, obviously, if they'd have asked, I would have had to tell them, but they didn't ask. So, <laughs> well, know. I remember, you know, having a plus four. I mean, there the were games for it, but you'd have to go into, like, a computer shop and go, like, under the counter and pull, like, a box out and stuff. But, yeah, it obviously never played all the big games, did it? <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
What was your reaction the first time you saw an Amiga? No, I went absolutely ballistic. I mean, who couldn't? Uh, what we did is we, we had um, a show at, uh, in London and um, we had an Amiga on display. And if I recall, we had um, 32 programs running simultaneously in tiny little windows on the screen. Mm-hmm. All at the same time? Yeah, all at the same time. Admittedly, a lot of them running quite slowly. But nobody had ever seen an Amiga like that before in their whole life. And um, at least of all us. And, I mean, it was just an awesome feeling. I mean, there's nothing better than when you're working with technology that you know kicks butt. Well, you think back then, you know, that the PCs were still like, you know, the, the Randos and even Macs were black and white and stuff back then, weren't they? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, really, I mean, this was a whole, uh, this was like such a, a, a massive level of um, increased, you know, um, well, we had the colours and we had all the multitasking and, and all of those things. I mean, it was revolutionary. What was your original plan for the Amiga in the UK then? Well, um, of course, the first Amiga was a 1000, and, and it was not a product for us um, because of its price point. It was not deemed to be a consumer product. Um, so we kind of watched in awe as... Um, I mean, our, our guys did a very good job in the UK, un, unlike the US, where they didn't really do all that great a job. Uh, our guys did really, really well, particularly in education. Um, we had an educational specialist, and um, and, and we, we got this product at the Amiga 1000. We got, got it into TV studios and places like that, where, where people were doing pre-production work and all those sorts of things. And it was it was very well received, without a doubt, albeit it was expensive. And this brought, um, you know, even though it was expensive, the Amiga 1000 brought that kind of productivity to the smaller... Um, pre-production houses who just couldn't believe what they were getting, you know. I remember being at school, like, you know, I used to do video and stuff at school, but, I mean, you know, I think Acorn had the main education market in the UK back then. But my yes, teacher would always, I had an Amiga 500, you know, that always asked me to bring my Amiga in to do the credits and stuff and the video titling and all that kind of thing. Sure. <laughs> yeah, my sure. dad uh, ran the fine art department and every single machine was an Amiga 4000 because mm-hmm. uh, they were using it for video editing and, you know... Uh, yes. Kind of yeah. early 3D stuff. Yeah, we used to do the weather, didn't you? Ulrika Johnson, I think, yeah, yeah. On, on an Amiga. <laughs> yeah, the old weather at Central TV used to be done with an Amiga 2000 as well. <laughs> well, the guys that produced the video toaster um, did really, really well because uh, even though the toaster cost more money than the, than, than the Amiga did, mm-hmm. it was a brilliant um, add-on. Uh, and and then the Genlock, of course, and uh, all of that stuff. Revolutionary, weren't they? Oh, it was indeed, yeah. So the most popular Amiga was the Amiga 500. How popular would you say it was at its peak? Well, um, I think um, I think the world kind of changed really once we uh, made the decision to to start selling computers uh, instead of selling them as computers, selling them more or less as dreams and putting this package stuff together. That's when that's when the whole world changed because. Um, I've always believed, and and although we laughed about it at the beginning of the interview, but you know, I didn't used to use a computer. Mm-hmm. I, I never knew how one worked, but I could tell anybody what it would do for you. Don't ask me how it did it, but I knew how what it would do for you. So I wanted to sell the computer on on the basis of what it would do for you, and that's why I wanted to produce these packages with all of the colourful graphics on them, so you could see what it would do for you. 
Um, because otherwise, all you're looking at is a piece of plastic with some keys on it. Mm. So what, once we launched the bundles um, and, and everything changed, and, and ironically, it kicked on the, the Commodore 64 because we, we put uh, 64 into bundles as well. We kept the 64 going at least two years beyond its proper sell-by date just because of the way we packaged it. So you kind of helped invent these kind of packaging of games with consoles and... I think the Commodore were the first company that ever had it like on the box and I remember your Batman pack, it it really was the first time a machine was sold as kind of an entertainment device more than just a, a computer in my opinion. Yeah, that, that's exactly what happened because um, I had a new MD came in this, uh, and that was a guy called Steve Franklin and um, when he came, when he joined Commodore UK, um, we were in Maidenhead then um, he didn't even talk to me for two weeks. Um, he, he brought, he was from the business systems side and he got rid of all of our business systems, um, staff, except for, um, our education guy. Uh, and he brought all his own people in. He didn't even talk to me for two weeks. And then one day he walked in, he said, Pleasant's my office now, sat down. And he said, uh, he said, I'll be honest with you, David. He said, if I knew anybody who understood your side of the business, you wouldn't even be here now. I said, oh, thanks a lot. It's terrific. <laughs> you know? And he said, no, he said, I've got nothing against you. He said, I don't know anything about you. He said, but I do know that I've been told I've got to, you know, completely change the ethos of this company in the UK. And um, on the basis that it seems like I'm stuck with you, here are my rules. And because he read off all these rules about ethics and integrity and everything, all of which, you know, completely comfortable with anyway. Mm -hmm. So anyway, when he'd finished sort of his little rant, and I said to him, I'll tell you what, Steve, I'll make a deal with you. And he said, you're in no no position to make a deal with me. And I said, no, hear me out. I said, if you let me do what I wanted to do for a while, I'll bring you more business than you've ever seen in your life. Or if I fail, you'll have every reason to get rid of me. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, what are you talking about? And I said, from this moment on, I do not want to sell computers. I want to sell dreams. And I told him what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. And at least he had the, you know, the, the guts to go and let me do it. And that's when I came up with the Batman pack. And, um, uh, well, I guess in some ways the rest is history because, I mean, when I went to see Ocean Software, they'd literally just got back from Hollywood and they'd just paid $1 million dollars for the right to make the game, Batman the movie. Mm -hmm. um, they hadn't even started making the game. And I went to them and I said, listen guys, I've got a proposition to put to you. Um, you're either gonna have the guts to go with it or, you, uh, or you're gonna send for the men in the white coast to come and take me away. And basically I said to them, what I want you to do is, I said, when the game is finished, I want you to give it to me exclusively for two, for two months and I will sell it in a pack and it will be it will be the Batman pack. Uh, the fact that there is an Amiga inside it will be virtually incidental. And I said um, I want to pay you very little for it, and I only want to commit to ten thousand pieces. And of course, the first thing they said was send for the men in the white coat. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Which, I, of course, I didn't blame them for at all. But obviously, it went on to be so successful, that pack, didn't it? Well, the, the fact of the matter is they were concerned that the dealers would be upset. And I said they will be upset for about two days because they're not going to be selling a £40 product. If this goes the way I think it's going to go, they're going to be selling £400 product. And they they were also worried about how much how many they were actually going to sell because they estimated it was going to cost them a million dollars to make the game. So that was a $2 million investment. 
And they said, we're worried about, you know, this affecting our volumes. Well, the truth of the matter was that, um, yeah, the, the dealers were upset, literally for a couple of days. And then they started selling Batman packs hand over fist, making a lot more money. Um, and, uh, in fact, uh, Ocean ended up selling five times more product than they'd absolutely estimated. And I didn't end up buying 10,000 pieces from them. I took 186,000 pieces because that's how many Batman packs we sold in 12 weeks of a Christmas. Well, another genius thing that I thought about the packs was the inclusion of kind of small office suites and educational stuff because you could justify buying the system for your parents by going, look, it's got maths programs in there. Exactly. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that, that is exactly what I did. I, I mean, that that absolutely definitely was, was something that came from me. You know, the parents need to justify spending the money. And even though everybody knew that the kids are buying it for the games, by putting Deluxe Paint in there uh, and by putting in, you know, a word processing package and a couple of other things, it justified it that it was it could be seen as being educational, inverted commas. <laughs> I remember as well that the packs were always very much like the fashion of what's going on right now. Like the, the Batman movie obviously came out at the same time as the pack. And then I remember the cartoon classics. Bart Simpson was like the biggest thing in the world at that point as yeah, well. Screen so. Gems as well. Yeah, it was always is... very much, you know, that what's going on now. And it was really the first time I remember a technology product kind of being trendy. Yeah, well, again, it was it, that was the whole idea behind it was to, you know, let's, let's um, align ourselves with something which is going to be um, on trend. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and and I think I think well it it proved its success um, by virtue of the fact that so many of the uh, software companies wanted then their product to be involved in the pack, um, and and you know I think that in itself is um, you know that that's very flattering. So um, you'd planned a kind of replacement for the C sixty four, which was going to be the Amiga three hundred. Yep. That morphed into the Amiga six hundred. What happened there? <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's one of my pet hates, that is. I, I went I went to Mehdi Ali and I said to Mehdi, listen, we've managed to keep the 64 alive for two years longer than it really should have been, but this is going to be its last year for certain. We're not going to get the volumes. And I said, what I would like is I'd like a product to come in to replace it. So can we produce a really, really low-cost Amiga product which will be cut down so that we can meet the price point, ideally £199. We could maybe stretch to 249 I thought, by that stra- at that moment in time. But I said, all we want is to get this as the first product that people buy, as long as it is expandable, so they can add hard drives and they can add you know, whatever they want to it, they can add more RAM and various other things. Just let's get our foot in the door. So the idea of the Amiga 300 was was um, born from that, and of course, when you think about Amiga 300, it's a, a lower number than the 500. So anybody um, hearing about an Amiga 300 would automatically assume that it was a lesser product than the 500. So we had a meeting in Germany, and it was all agreed, and we all left that meeting. And imagine my surprise when about two and a half months later we got a whole shipment of A600s came in. <laughs> And it turns out that what had happened was that after we'd left the meeting, the Germans said, we can't sell anything that does not have a hard drive built in it. And so all the spec was changed. And so they launched this thing as the A600. 
And of course, they launched it at a time we were coming up to the Christmas season. Um, and because it was called the A600, it killed the Amiga 500 sales, absolutely stone dead. And the 500 was still selling at that point, wasn't it? Yeah, of course it was. And it was this a was downgrade. Meant, this was meant as a low-cost entry level, not not a replacement. But you call something something with a higher number than the one that you're selling. It's not rocket science to realise that everybody believed it was a, a higher spec product. Was it hard to put a brave face on at that time? Oh, it was terrible. But the worst thing of all, of course, is that if you it, it, all of the first several thousand machines that came in under the name 600, all the motherboards was A300 on it. <laughs> Still printed on there, weren't yeah. they? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It was horrific. It was another example of Commodore senior management not having a clue what they were doing. Killing off their most successful line. Yeah, I mean, the thing is this, is that um, th- there are a lot of people who really liked the 600. Um there were certain things about it which were which were quite good, but in reality, it, you know, it, it cost more to make than the 500. So therefore, we were actually, as a company, we were making less money mm-hmm. than we were with the 500, which you know that's nonsense in itself. Um, and we killed the sales of the 500. I mean, you know, so many, so many retailers said, "What are we going to do with all our stocks of 500? Nobody wants to buy it anymore." I mean, I've said this on many occasions. The, the reason why Commodore failed was that it never, ever, ever had a plan, not from day one. How soon did you know that the Amiga 1200 was coming? Oh, I knew, I knew that in plenty of time. That was the one thing that there was um, some coordination um, over. And, and in fact, I was in America at that time. I, I'd been nagging at uh, Medi Ali for, to let me go to America to sort out the, the retail channels out there because we had no, we had, were not selling anything into the retail channels in the states. So he, he let me go over there, and I had to sort that out. Um, and, and the problem there was that nobody was paying their bills. And what I discovered when I eventually went and knocked on all their doors. Uh, the first one I ever went to was Sears in, in Chicago. And I said, why aren't you paying your bills? And they said, oh, because we're waiting for you to come and take all our stock back. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, I've been with Commodore nine years, and I've never known us to be a lending library. Yeah. And they, they slid across the boardroom table to me a, a letter that said, sale or return, signed by Jim Dion, who was the, the, the uh, um, USA, uh, Commodore Inc., the, the sales company. He was their president. And he'd signed the sale or return letter, and it was all on, guess what, CDTVs. Oh, God. So Sears and every other retail channel in the U.S. had been stuffed to the gunnels with CDTVs, which, let's be honest about it, even even specialist dealers couldn't sell CDTVs because they, they were so, so far advanced. So what chance would somebody like Sears have? Sears, they, they don't sell anything. They ring up the till and they put something in a bag. They don't know how to sell anything. So I had to take all of this stock back. I mean, thousands and thousands of CDTVs. Um, but what I managed to do was I managed to get into them a replacement to the same value of Amiga 500s. I actually produced a special pack for Sears, their own pack, and got them uh, to take Amiga 500s, which, of course, they did sell. Mm-hmm. And um, so that at least got us out of that trouble. Um, and then after that, uh, I've done that with all of the retailers in the, in the U.S. Uh, so I then went to Mary Allen and I said, right, my job here is done for now. And he said, what are you talking about? He, he said, oh, you know, you've got to stay here and keep selling. And I said, no, absolutely not. I said, you and I, Mary, both know that we've got the, the 1200 coming shortly. 
And I do not want the same problem, you know, with all of the retailers saying to me, we've now got 32-bit product on the market, and uh, so come and take all our 16-bit product back. So I said to him, they've got enough stock to last them now until the 1200 comes out. When we launch the 1200, I'll come back to the U.S. and carry on from where I left off. Because that's what you do about forward thinking. Um, so, yeah, we had plenty of, plenty of time with the 1200. But by that time, of course, I'd come back to the U.K. and um, taken over there. What did you think of Madi Ali and uh, what was working with him like? Um, well, I don't know what I'm allowed to say on air. Um, <laughs> We've got a beat button. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, uh, I've got really mixed feelings about him. I mean, it, the guy had a certain charm about him. But um, what, what I disliked immensely was that he never, ever got to grips with the market and the industry that, that he was in charge of. He used to recruit people um, basically on hearsay. You know, if, if somebody said, oh, this is a good guy, and he, he, he'd recruit them. And he, because he didn't know anything about his market, he, he would leave everything to them. And, of course, they would screw up. And I, I can give you a perfectly good example of that. He, he recruited a new head of engineering, a guy called Bill Sidness. And Bill came from, Bill was a nice enough guy. He, he came from the PC. In, I think he was at IBM. Yeah, I think he was. And um, I think he was a guy that was in charge of PC Junior. Yeah, that was a success. So anyway, <laughs> I just, you know, I sidestepped that. <laughs> anyway, um, so the first, I mean, I, I go to, uh, to work in the U.S. in January of 1993. The first thing I do is go up to see all the engineers in Westchester. And we had seven, get this, seven Amiga engineers. And we had 40, four zero PC engineers. Seven on your flagship machine. Yep. And and what had happened was that Bill had been recruited, to, you know, head of engineering, and he gave a job to all his mates. Now, who on God's earth would need 40 PC engineers? I mean, if we were to stay in the PC business, Commodore, then all we should have done was to badge them, get them built by somebody in the Far East who was much better at building them than us. They had much better control of uh, costs and also control of inventory and we should have just ordered the product and placed orders on them and got it with our badge on it and shipped it we did not need 40 engineers who, who did because you asked me about Mediali, that's a very good example i know a lot of the um you know watching like dave haney's documentary for example a lot of the um staff in westchester blamed medi directly for the downfall of the company. Yeah, well, the, the, as I said all along, the, the fact is that because the company never had a plan, mm -hmm. it, it seemed to stumble from one crisis to the next. If it had a plan, then it would have been sensational because Dave Haney and the boys, the stuff that they were developing was mind-blowing. And when, when, when Commodore went bankrupt, the, the, the idiots that bought the, the, the rights and, uh, and, and all the assets of Commodore, they let it all go. And I'll never, ever understand that. The, the stuff that the boys are working on was absolutely astounding. You know, we're talking about, yes, it would not have been immediately compatible. Eventually, we would have had to, you know, rewrite the whole thing because technology moves on in leaps and bounds. But what they were working on, they were working on a risk-based core 
which had um, 3D rendering engine built in, which had a 5.1 surround sound stereo built in, which had a chunky planar mode, mm-hmm. moving big chunks of data around, all built into the chip. It was absolutely, I mean, I was dem- had it demonstrated, and even though it was kind of cobbled together to show how it worked, it was mind-blowing. I remember we talked to Dave Haney in Amsterdam, and he said... Um that they had actually managed to get the AGA chipset onto a small chip as well that was going to go onto the RISC one. And yes. that there was a network that they were developing, some kind of Amiga networking system. And this system. was before the PlayStation. Yeah. yeah. yeah this was... Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, we have that technology so far ahead of everybody else. And where is it now? And who's responsible for the fact that it all got lost? Well, here in the UK, when you came back, I mean, obviously, kind of the last big swan song for the Amiga here was the CD32. Yeah. And um, that had a huge high-profile launch when you had Chris Evans there and everything. Um, what was that? How did you plan that event then? How did that go? Well, again, I have to be honest with you, that, that was brought forward um, in a panic mode. We, we'd, we'd originally planned for that launch to be um, spring, early summer the following year. And and the reason for that, of course, was that we had, uh, in the UK, in spite of lots and lots of comments about the rest of the world, in the UK, we had a terrific relationship with all the games developers. I mean, there's no way we could have done the deals we did with all the packs and the bundles if we didn't have a good relationship with them. Mm-hmm. We had given um, development kit, uh, or supplied, I'm, I'm sure we didn't give them away, but we had supplied development kit to all the major games developers to write for CD32. And they were on strictly, um, you know, non-disclosure agreements, and which they all stuck to. And we had the games being developed that were absolutely phenomenal, which were going to utilise all the, all the extra facilities that the CD32 had to offer. And then suddenly, because Commodore US Worldwide is in trouble, I'm told bring this launch forward. So we had to launch a product at a time when all our 1,200 sales were, were ended up being jeopardised and we had no real games for it. Because developers were still halfway through making them. Absolutely. So, so you know, from, from the point of view of what was, what was promised um, and, and what we should have been able to deliver, we weren't able to deliver because it was, the whole thing was brought forward. But having said that, sometimes the Lord works in mysterious ways because we'd, we'd planned the launch. Uh, I'd booked the, um, the Science Museum in London, which I thought was a fantastic place to launch it because this was history in the making, no question about it. Mm. And about two and a half, three weeks prior to the launch, um, there was an article in, the, uh, in, the, in a PC magazine by the gentleman that you had on as a guest on your show last week, Tom Kalinsky. Yes, from Sega. And they, yeah, they asked him about um, 32-bit CD technology, and he said, and I more or less quote word for word, it can't be done. If anybody could do it, it would be Sega, and we're not doing it, so it can't be done. Mm. And that was about two and a half weeks before we would do the launch. So, <laughs> You're like, I know something you don't know. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yes. So, so naturally enough, what we did, of course, was that we were able to utilise that. I mean, again, I think it shows that how fast, how switched on we were as, as a UK team. The fact that we got Chris Evans, you know, who's now going to be the most high-profile presenter probably in the world, mm-hmm. uh, it just shows you how far ahead of the game we were. And I guess we got him cheap as well. Yeah, you, you wouldn't now. <laughs> no, but he was no, Mr. Not, cool, no. wasn't he? But he was, um, uh... but he was, you know, he was pretty high-profile at the time. 
And um, anyway, so so we had a voiceover done uh, at the launch, and um, you know, we everybody that was at the launch, which is all the retailers and the software companies and so on and so forth. And we were able to announce that um, this product will be in your shops in two weeks' time, which was really phenomenal. It was the first time we'd really actually been able to do something and planned it that well, even though we were rushed into doing it. Um, but it, it did mean that, um, you know, that we were able to sort of bring some professionalism to it. And that was around that same time when um, I, I think uh, you guys know I got a phone call from this guy and he said David he probably don't remember me he said but um, I did some business with you a couple of years ago and he said and I, I just like the way that you dealt with people he said um, we have um, uh, uh, poster sites all over the country and he said we've got I've got a really cracking deal for you he said I've got three of the, uh, the best poster sites in the whole of London that somebody has already paid 50% deposit for for Christmas and they've pulled out of it so if you want them, he said, you can have them for the half price because I've already got half the money. Oh, and by the way, one of them's outside Sega's head office. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, I, I just, you know, how can you resist that? And that's when, um, that's when we came up with that big slogan, which said, you know, Sega's advertising always used to be, to be this good takes ages, to be this good takes Sega, and they span the word ages around, which is very clever. Lovely advertising. So I put the sign up which said, to be this good will take Sega ages. <laughs> <laughs> we put that image, actually, of the advert on um, on our Facebook the other day, and yeah, loads of people are liking yeah, it. Yeah, really it's good reaction. A, so if you want to yeah. see it, search for our Facebook page. Well, that went all around the world, that did. I mean, it was so it was so well received by everybody. And, of course, they couldn't do anything about it because Tom Kalinske himself had said so. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, they sold approximately 100,000 units in Europe of CD32, do you think it would have been a success if Commodore could have kept up with the demand or been in America? Yeah, I, I, I think it would have been a success because of the software that was being written for it that, of course, most of the guys abandoned, you know, because, we, you know, they, they were maybe only halfway through developing mm. when, when Commodore went bankrupt. And it's, you know, it's a very big risk, isn't it, to keep on investing money on something that, you know, is probably going to never be reproduced again. I remember seeing the list of all the titles, yeah, and then like half of them didn't come out. Yeah, and, and, and I, I don't blame any of them people for pulling out at all. Uh, they, they would I think what they ended up doing was porting it down to, to fit with the 1200s. Monthly magazine readership. Uh, for Amiga magazines was 1.4 million in the UK, which is a phenomenal amount. I think it was 2002 that our last commercial magazine finished. The the audited figures, the last figures that I saw, and and admittedly they did sort of decline quite rapidly after the demise of Commodore, but the last figures I saw, it was fully audited figures, were 630,000 magazines sold on a monthly basis. And they reckon they estimated they were read about 2.25 per uh, house per, per person. Sorry, persons per household. So yeah, between 1.3 million, 1.4 million uh, read every month. Well, yeah, you, you, you used to have a section in Amiga format. I mean, what, did you think you were the first um, Commodore MD to do that? Did you think it was important to talk directly to the fans and the community? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things that when I really had an opportunity to make a difference, I realized that, um, that there was a lot of misconceptions about Commodore, about, um, you know, how, how we were, you know, for example, with, with developers and how we were with retailers. There was a lot of misconceptions. So I thought what one of our problems is that we don't 
have a face of the company. So even though it's an ugly one, I decided that I'd, you know, I had an opportunity. I put my face forward, and I went to to the magazines and said, "If you like, I'll be happy to do some kind of a column." And and I think it made a big difference because people then started to feel it was kind of a personal thing, you know. And and I felt that you know at Commodore UK we were a personal company. We we did we get on well with everybody. I mean, I know for an absolute fact, and I'm very, very proud of this, is that that I signed, I was the first ever hardware company I signed and contributed on an annual basis to subscribe to FAST, the Federation Against Software Theft. And I did that because I believed that it was wrong, that the software companies should invest all of their money and then it got pirated and they, were, they weren't making enough money. And I wanted them around a long time because we needed each other. The more machines I got out into the marketplace, the more software they would sell. And the whole thing would be, you know, would be self-fulfilling. That was the whole idea of it. From your perspective, you know, is making the hardware. I mean, we had um, we actually had a software power on our show not long ago, and um, one of the you know main Amiga crackers. And I remember him saying to us that really he thinks that the piracy of the you know because it was obviously a big problem on the Amiga. He thought it actually sold more Amigas than did damage. What what would your opinion be on that? Oh, I think it's a really hard one to actually answer with any. It it, it certainly was poss- possibly contributed to. Who knows? Would you say it was a big problem though? Did developers always? get on your case about it? No, I mean, basically, bear in mind that we were the only company that that didn't control the software. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you uh, wrote software for Sega, they had you by the short and curlies because you couldn't do anything that they didn't want you to do. And, and, and of course, you had to pay as well. You had to pay them a license. You had to pay them a fee for every bit of software. We we, We didn't do that, you know. Now, I'm not saying that we maybe we should have done that. I mean, I, I was kind of um, uh, I was kind of secretly annoyed that we had 13 magazines with 630,000 a month, using you know s- selling everything based on around Amiga, and we never got a penny in royalties, not one penny. You know, at the end of the day, I, it was something I would have liked to have re- tried to readdress with them. So, how did you know about the bankruptcy? What was the first kind of time that you heard of it? Well, um, remember, my history is that um, I'd been doing the international business for a couple of years, doing very well. I um, I forced myself to, uh, onto Medi to go to the States and sort that out, which I did. And then, because I then said, look, my job here is done, as I've explained to you, um, in, in relation to the, I, knew, I knew the 1200s are coming. So, I, I, I went back to the international business, which in my absence had been screwed up a bit. And then I was forced to go back to the UK, which I'd, I'd been offered that job um, two years earlier. Mm-hmm. And I was forced back to the UK as an MD uh, on the basis that, you know, uh, Medi said, look, we're in trouble. We are in serious, serious trouble. The UK is our, is our most solid business. You built it, so I need you to come and run it. And... Um, so I knew from that moment in time that we were in big trouble. Um, but, you know, to be honest with you, if anybody had bothered to look, there was hardly any years when Commodore did make any money. But you, you might notice, too, that they never stopped paying themselves 2 and $3 million a year salaries. So you and Colin had a plan to buy out the whole of Commodore. Could you tell us about that? We put uh, together a management buyout bid for the whole worldwide assets of Commodore. Um, and the, the one thing that we did was that we did a a really, really sophisticated business plan. And we knew that we would need $50 million. 
And whilst you know that was a lot more money than than the actual cost of buying the assets, uh, we we estimated the assets would probably get for about 15 million, uh, and maybe a little bit less, and and we were pretty accurate with that. But what we factored in, of course, was that nobody, no supplier anywhere in the world would supply us with credit terms because Commodore just burnt everybody big time, left them with big debts. So we knew we had to fund managing and buying on a cash basis for about seven months is what we estimated when, we'd, when we would be able to and then get some credit terms. And we knew we needed $50 million dollars. So Colin and I, we put together a, a, a terrific business plan. In fact, Colin's got a copy of that, as a matter of interest. And um, uh, we went to Coopers and Lybrand, who were specialists at the time in management buyouts. Um, and uh, we pulled together a consortium of investors. They were mostly um, high-wealth individuals uh, who, between them, came up with $25 million dollars. And we also had um, we had the interest of a, a Chinese manufacturing company called New Star Electronics, and they were going to put in 25 million, and they would do our manufacturing for us, which made you know perfect sense. Very low cost manufacturing by somebody who was a partner in the business, um, that made perfect sense. And unfortunately, um, 48 hours before the auction date. Um, New Star Electronics were literally got at, and they dropped us and decided that they would um, side with ESCOM, mm -hmm. who had, who had um, said to them, look, don't put in the $25 million. Come with us. Uh, you won't have to put any money up, and then we'll give it to you for a couple of million dollars. And in fact, they shafted them as well. So we lost our $25 million, and we we could not, under any circumstances, spend the $25 million that we had committed from the high-wealth individuals, knowing that we'd probably lose it because we could not sustain financing the business. I remember that, you know, Commodore UK, you guys were always at the magazines and um, even like the early internet, you know, pages and that back then. Everyone was so sure that you guys were going to do it. And then literally it was right at the last set. Everyone's like, who nurses Escom company? So uh, was it kind of literally at the last second that happened then? Yes, it was It was 48 hours before the end of the auction. Do you know how? Yeah, we know how. Um, Escom employed somebody who ultimately was running Amiga after the after they bought it. And um, that person got at the Chinese, and that person has admitted to Colin that he got at the Chinese and, and basically, basically um, uh, stole our investor from us. So, what plans did you have for the Amiga brand? The first thing that we were going to do was we were going to commercialise uh, on the names of the company. I mean, CBM was a very, very highly regarded name. It had the same kind of connotation as IBM. Mm -hmm. So what we were going to do there is that we were going to license the CBM name to anybody who wanted to make a business-type product. And um, what we would have done is that we would have established um, a fairly modest um, quality control division. Not only would we have got the royalty for that product without having to pay anything out other than the very modest cost of uh, quality control, we would also have offered to, uh, to use our sales team to sell that product into our existing uh, distribution network for commission. So that was with CBM. 
with the name Commodore, we were going to do exactly the same thing, but for anything that had a plug on it. And if you think about it, the name Commodore, we, we, were, we had distribution throughout the whole of European channels in every every uh, electronic consumer electronic shop in in, in Europe. Uh, as far as Amiga was concerned, um, we were asked constantly asked for things like clothing uh, and that kind of thing. So you know tracksuits and t-shirts and all that kind of thing. Again, we would have licensed out the Amiga name for those kind of products. Now all of that would have brought us revenue in, which would have allowed us to then develop. First of all, the Amiga range, and that's where we, we had this idea about uh, having a tower. We actually had a tower designed by a German company, um, which would allow uh, to people to swap motherboards so that they could always constantly upgrade and keep using their peripherals, which we'd never done that before. And that range was to be called Amiga Infinity. And that would have been done through all of the independent retail channels, not not the Dixons and people like that who can't, you really couldn't do that, but the small independent channels. So we had a fantastic um, network uh, of them um, supplied by you know our distributors. Now, in addition to all of that, um, one thing I really, really did want to do is I wanted to put CD32s to make them available uh, on an OEM basis to all of the hi-fi manufacturers for them to put into their, their hi-fi stacking systems. Did you keep much of an eye on the Amiga then after your plans fell through? No. So I'll be honest with you, once it was in the hands of ESCOM... Uh, and and the people at ESCOM who who we had very uh, we had we had no regard for them as people. And once it got into their hands, we knew it was going to be a nightmare. Uh, but we never dreamt that it, that they'd go bankrupt so quickly. But what we did know is that they never ever had any real plans for the Amiga, none whatsoever. Uh, the sad thing is that. Um, you know, we felt that we'd let people down, although I absolutely hand on heart guarantee you that it, it was not something that, you know, that was within our control. We were cheated out of it. And, um, you know, that that fact will never, ever go away. Um, and, and, and it was really, um, you know, I don't know whether Colin and I would have made a really fantastic girl. We believe that we would have done. I guess we'll never know. But one thing is for sure, we would have done a much better job than was done with it. Well, speaking of Colin as well, I mean, you know, we go 20 years into the future now to the to the present day. Yep. And uh, you're actually working with Colin Proudfoot again. I am indeed. Very lucky man. Tell us about <laughs> tell us about Friend Up. Yeah, well, <clears throat> that all came about, um, you know, I mean, my, my involvement with, uh, with Commodore and Amiga really um, kind of... Um, disappeared because I, basically I, I remarried and I moved to Australia. I lived in Australia for quite a long time and then I was in America and, um, and in the Dominican Republic and I lost track of everything. I came back to the UK a few years ago and then last year I got invited to be a, a key, keynote speaker at the Amiga 30 event in Amsterdam. Well, we first met that, wasn't it? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And, and in Great fact, event. I also got invited and did a, a, speak, a speech in the UK and also in Germany. And whilst I, uh, whilst I was in Amsterdam, in fact, I, I just got off stage from having done my speech. And I was approached by these guys from this Norwegian company called FriendUp. And the truth of the matter is, I was kind of—I um, don't know—I'd got my—I'd got my defensive coat on, because 
after the Commodore's demise, I was approached by so many crackpots who had all these different ideas about things they wanted to do, none of which made any sense to me whatsoever. Mm. And I, I just, you know, thought everybody's the same. But anyway, these guys, some friend up, um, approached me and started to talk to me. And then suddenly I got really interested because what they were talking about is what they've developed, which is um, basically it, it's, it's software. Um, it was it was built around the spirit of the Amiga. Mm-hmm. These are ex-Amiga um, guys, aren't they? Well, they are, because uh, the, the main guy, the, the, the founder of the business and the chief architect, Hogner, um, uh, when he was uh, doing his university, he was a huge Amiga fan. And apparently, it's a bit embarrassing, but apparently I was his hero because of what we were talking about earlier, me being in the magazines and things, you know. Yes. And uh, he was a huge Amiga fan, and he'd had this idea about uh, an operating system that he, that took the best part of what Amiga had and brought it into the 21st century. And that's basically what he's developed. Friend up his friend unifying platform, and even the name Friend. I mean, of course, that's that's the English version of Amiga, because yeah, yeah. Amiga is in Spanish for a friend, but Amiga is a female friend, and Amigo is a male friend. Mm-hmm. So he's even used the name Friend, which you know, which is quite amazing. And um, so, anyway, to cut a long, long story short. Um, they explained it all to me. I got it pretty much in an instant, which, as I've said many times, I'm not technologically very astute. I'm a real dumbass at that. But I got this, and, and I could see all sorts of potential with this. And so, yeah, I, and so I said, yeah, I'm interested. And then they said oh, they were off to um, Mountain View to the Amiga 30th in the States. And I said, have you got anybody lined up for financial side of things and they said no I said well make sure you talk to Colin because he's there he's living in America now so I put them on to Colin and Colin got it as well and so we are now both directors of uh, of the company and if people want to try it out we'll pop uh, links in the show notes but you can get it at friendos.com and you can look at Dan's channel because he's got tons of videos on I it. have yes we've done some videos on my YouTube channel so Indeed. explaining it in depth now, speaking of videos as well, actually, David, um, you are going to be in a new documentary that is uh, is out this week. Um, yes, Bedrooms I am. To Billions. I'm a film star. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your appearance in Bedrooms to Billions of the Amiga years, then. Yeah, um, well, of course, when when um, Anthony and Nicola, the, the people that um, did Bedrooms to Billions, when they when they produced that um, amazing documentary, everywhere they turned, people were just saying it was all down to the Amiga, all down to the Amiga. So they felt almost obliged that they had to do something about the Amiga. So they took this project on, which has become a massive undertaking. And they've interviewed everybody and anybody who's to do with Amiga over the last few years. Yeah, I was invited to to participate. And the irony of it, of course, was that where I was actually interviewed and filmed was in uh, Sony Computer Entertainment's head office in the centre of London. (laughs) No way. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is a real, it's a real, it's it's a tragic irony. But um, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so they, they interviewed me, and um, uh, it's apparently I'm on on uh, on the video quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, mind you, there's there's loads and loads. It's, it's well over two hours long, the film, and in fact, they're doing a couple of special features at the end. Uh, one of them is the story of the Batman pack, which they think is was extremely key to the success of uh, of Amiga. 
And they're also doing a special feature as well on uh, the launch of the CD32, which is rather nice. Well, David, it's been lovely having you on for an interview and great hearing about the past and all the troubles and everything yeah well it's one of those things you know i mean i'm i had 12 years of commodore and even though yes i made some mistakes and a lot of things went wrong i wouldn't change any of it it was the best 12 years of my life uh, i'm commodore through and through and i think most people know that and and to be honest with you i love talking about it so um thank you so much for the opportunity it's been a, a real a real treat